Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. Welcome to the nose. We're already having off the air such a nose conversation about whether today is Tool Day or Lana Del Rey Day. Um, and a huge fight is broken out about that. Each, each, <laughs> each act has dropped an album. And for Tool, it's been an incredibly long wait for those people who care about Tool, one of which I am not. Uh, anyway, let's talk about things that we really do care about. One of the things that we care about is our terrific panel. Another thing that we care about uh, is uh, the lineup of topics we've got. Let's begin with that panel. Rich Holland is a principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center, and commissioner on, uh, of, on the cultural of cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. Jacques Lamar is a playwright, director of client services at Buzz Engine. Kara McDonough is a freelance writer. You can read her blog at karamcdonough.com. Uh, Com, except that it's Kara, C-A-R-A-M-C-D-U-N-A uh, dot com. All right. So, and a little bit later in the show, we will be going to, I mean, metaphorically going to uh, Nidstock, which is uh, Governor Ed Lamont's um, recreation of Woodstock at the Woodstock Fair uh, here in Connecticut. He's going to have a battle of the bands uh, with, uh, uh, with m- music recalling the era of Woodstock. And I'm already exhausted just trying to describe it. Uh, but we have a special reporter on the scene. It's uh, Frankie Graziano. So we'll be uh, using our uh, special uh, technology, which we refer to as AccuFrankie. Let's hear it again. AccuFrankie. That's excellent. So, by the way, that's AccuFrankie. Like the last time we used this, Frankie's friends were like texting him saying, hey, man, they're saying F you, Frankie. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are the chances that we produced a sounder that says F you, Frankie? It doesn't say that. It says Accu, Frankie. All right. So anyway, that's, that is still to come. I want to also mention a couple of things. Jacques wants you to know about the Spirit Yoga Festival at Riverside Park, September 14th and 15th, uh, spirityogafestival.com for tickets. Uh, and there's a special uh, Labor Day weekend sale. Rich wants you to know about the Under the Influence concert tonight. Uh, quick details, Rich. Uh, it's uh, five uh, five singer songwriters uh, playing their music and at least one thing that influenced them. Hence, under the influence, and it is going to be at Flag Road UCC, uh, one thirty four Flag Road in West Hartford. Starts at eight o'clock. It stops when we get kicked out. All right, and we, he says we because he's one of the singer songwriters. Yeah. Very intriguing. Uh, all right, so a little bit later, we're going to be talking about um, uh, the movie The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Um, but before we do that, uh, uh, we're going to talk about the new Dave Chappelle uh, comedy special. It's called Sticks and Stones. Um, maybe the way to begin is just by giving – it's almost impossible. I don't know how you managed to do a clip. From this special, I was watching the special. And I was thinking, how could we pull audio from this because of the words that he uses? But Jonathan McNichol figured out how, so uh, I guess I don't have to really tell you anything. I want to see if you can guess who it is I'm doing an impression of. All right, let me get into character. You got to guess who it is, though. <clears throat> okay, here it goes. Uh, duh. Hey, duh. If you do anything wrong in your life, and I find out about it, I'm going to try to take everything away from you. And I don't care what I find out. It could be today, tomorrow, 15, 20 years from now, if I find out you're the finished. Who, who's that? That's you. 
That's what the audience sounds like to me. That's why I don't be coming out doing comedy all the time, because y'all niggas is the worst motherfuckers I've ever tried to entertain in my life. Oh. Goddamn sick of it. This is the worst time ever to be a celebrity. You're gonna be finished. Everyone's doomed. Michael Jackson has been dead for 10 years, and this nigga has two new cases. All right, I want to begin by saying it's a slightly new Dave Chappelle that we're seeing here in the sense that um, I don't know if the rest of the panel was struck by this, but when I saw the two specials that he released not all that long ago, he seemed a little on the sluggish side. He was either smoking or vaping all the way through both specials uh, and not particularly mobile. In, in this one, uh, he's wearing these coveralls playing and, and playing on the stage where there's uh, kind of a big, G, a big C where he stands a little bit, looks a little bit like the Google G, and then there's steps going behind him and then a large upstage space into which he runs a lot. It, whenever he says something that he thinks is really offensive, then like the audience might start throwing stuff at him. He gets up and he runs um, uh, up into that area, either that or if he wants to laugh at one of his own jokes. So we see a, a livelier, more sprightly Dave Chappelle. But Jacques, that's not really the point, is it? I mean, Sticks and Stones is the name of the special. It is very much about what you can and can't get away with. Agreed. Um, and and it's interesting because I, you know, obviously he's to a certain extent gotten away with it. He's got the special on Netflix and it's got everybody talking. Um, the the first part um, I had issues with. The second part I thought was pretty brilliant. But um, you know, I, I I'm not an aficionado of stand up. I think the last stand up and one has to qualify whether or not it was actually stand up that I watched was Hannah Gadsby, um, uh, and. You know, I think that obviously he is coming from a place of wanting to um, stir uh, public debate and stir uh, a degree of discomfort and make us laugh at things that are unpleasant. And um, I think in a lot of ways, mission accomplished. I know people who think this this special is absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant and subversive. And it is subversive with moments of brilliance, but I don't think it's as brilliant as – as one would hope. Cool. Okay. I want to circle back to the issues you have, but I, I want to take everybody else's temperature on this. Kara, how about you? Um, I felt uh, pretty sim- similar feelings. Um, I haven't really followed Chappelle over the years too closely. Um, I did like the coverall. That was the first thing I noticed. Um, I thought really, really similar feelings. I thought the beginning made me pretty uncomfortable to the point where I was not laughing. The second part... I was laughing a lot, and I felt a lot of that comedic release you feel when someone has really taken an issue that is scary or controversial and and put in, put a comic spin on it, and you feel relief from that. And in particular, I felt that way when he was doing the segment on school shootings, which obviously not everyone's going to feel the same way. That is a hugely controversial thing to make a, a, a comedy show about. But to me... I think that the amount that I am keyed up about that issue, the amount I'm angry about it, to hear someone turn it into pretty brilliant comedy gave me a huge, huge sense of relief. Like, I really, really, I needed that. Okay, Rich, how did it go for you? Okay, so um, I think we're three for three on this. The The first segment was just 
kind of hard to take. Um, the part that was hardest for me to take was the the whole Michael Jackson thing, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and uh, I could do I could. I could take comedy about uh, school shootings, you know. Uh, I could take comedy that suggests that, you know, we're going to get to gun control if all the black people go out and get weapons, you know. Um, uh, All of that works for me because I I understand uh, the side that he's actually on and and I'm kind of, you know, sympathetic to that side, right. But uh, the place that he went with the, you know, with the with the Michael Jackson stuff and not even just about whether he agreed or disagreed with the accusers, uh, but how he kept burrowing into that even further, just (laughs) kept compounding how uncomfortable this thing was. And thank goodness he had a great second set to, you know, to leave on a high note because that would have been a, a tough place to cut. See, I, so there's obviously something wrong with me because I actually did really kind of enjoy that. So, the, I mean, yeah, the first half, I don't know, maybe the first third to half of the show, he's dealing a lot with sexual issues and he's dealing with issues of, uh, of sexual transgression and he's dealing with them in a way that is going to make certain people uncomfortable. But I, I think one of the rules of comedy too is, you know, you're offended based on how close this comes to your own specific sen- set of sensibilities. Uh, and if he'd been doing jokes about rape in the way that he was doing jokes about mm-hmm. Michael Jackson's accused pedophilia, he might have had a different set of problems and, and a big a big bunch of problems that he doesn't have uh, doing that material. But, you know, on the other hand, he he does, I think, some pretty funny material on the opioid crisis. Um, I don't happen to have any close people to me who've died as a result of opioid addiction. If I did, I wouldn't think that was funny at all. You know, I mean, he, I'll just sort of quote one of the jokes. I don't want to spoil anything. But at one point, he talks about how looking at the opioid crisis, the way it's affecting the white population right now, it reminds him a lot uh, of the crack academic, uh, epidemic among African-Americans. And he said, you know, and I, I look at this, this crisis, this opioid crisis, the same way that white people must have looked at, at the black uh, crack epidemic. And he has a little beat and he goes, now, I don't care either. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, yeah, it's, there's a laugh there. But I mean, so much of this, like what you react to probably depends a lot um, on what touches your life most strongly or how, where you feel most vulnerable, right? So I think, so to your point though, Colin, there's, there's, a, um, there's a laugh there, right? And he holds that tension of did he really say that? And is he really going down this road of I don't care about, you know, about white kids dying on, you know, on on pharmaceuticals? Um, but then he gives you like a piece of moral relief in there, mm-hmm. right? You know, where he brings it to, gee, wouldn't it be great if these people who are making these rules had had the same ex- the same personal experience mm-hmm. with this, you know, that we had in, you know, in the black community, you know? And so you could tell that he's like, that that was for a comic effect and not at all a position that he holds, right? He brings us back to the we're actually really all in this together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that that works. We could we could work with that. You know, there's some places where he didn't bring us back, you know, right. and he just mm-hmm. kind of kept pushing further out. And that's the part that's awkward. Well, and to me, the, you know, the foundation of the first part isn't so much sex. It's about victim shaming, as he as he says, and what's what was horrible to me about that first part was him trying to paint Kevin Hart and Louis C.K. as the real victims. And you can say he wasn't making rape jokes, but Michael Jackson, in essence, raped those children. If and so, if he did, if he, well, yeah, all right, 
We're going to put a large asterisk next to that one. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't see how you could watch that special and not have your heart broken for those, those two men. Uh, whether or not you choose to believe it, if it's an amazing acting job, it's an amazing acting job. But the thing is, to make light of Rihanna getting uh, – being the victim of domestic abuse, mm-hmm. of um, children being sexually abused, to um, – Make fun of the transgender community uh, who are uh, among the most victimized in our society uh, for for laughs, but to make a larger point about cancel culture and poor Kevin Hart and Louis C.K. Mm-hmm. and their who are his peers. So I can see why he thinks you know it you know that that political correctness has upended the careers of. Of these talents, um, but Rihanna getting punched in the face is not the equivalent of Kevin Hart not hosting the Oscars. And so, to me, he was he was taking, um, you know, uh, gender and sexuality and and uh, and violence and mining them for laughs to make a bigger point that I mm-hmm. thought was quite sickening. All right. More? I mean, I, I, let me. I'll, I'll come back with a little, little bit more about that. Once again, right. I do feel as though he. Uh, w- one of the ways in which I, I did depart a little bit from Chappelle. I'm. By the way, I should say I didn't become a Chappelle fan until fairly recently. Um, what I knew about him kind of beforehand was his famous meltdown in Hartford. You know, where he had just a terrible problems with the audience and ultimately wound up either choosing not to or not being able to function at all on stage. He um, chose not to. I was there. You were there. That's right. Yeah, I was there. So and yeah, we 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 investigated that like it was the Pueblo incident. We had you. We had Julia Pistol. <laughs> We had, and, and um, you know, since then I've really started to, you know, follow what he does and what he says, and I, I really do find him to be really very interesting and very exciting. One of the things that I think that you guys are articulating, which I totally agree with, is one of the groups of the people he really seems to be very concerned about is celebrities, uh, including him, uh, and. You know, that's, that's even there in the clip that we played. He says to the audience, you know, you will destroy me because if you, if you, you are given a chance because that's what we're doing right now. It's happy hunting season on celebrities. Um, and it's pretty hard to get a big boo-hoo going for celebrities, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who have a lot of problems. But, you know, most of the celebrities are going to be some version uh, of OK. Um, on the other hand, I – I find myself and I find our current dialogue so constricted in so many different ways and I have seen so many people uh, either lose their jobs or suffer huge setbacks over what I regarded as rather minor offenses that there was some part of me that all of the just the transgressive – you know, absolutely capital W wrong things that he's saying. It was almost like a big gush of oxygen. I was like, there's somebody who can still do this, who can stand on stage in front of people and say all this stuff and basically not lose his job. And in that way, I feel like he's a little bit of a pioneer, you know, or he's just like trying to keep this space open for people to to say stuff like this. But that might just be me too. Anybody react? Well, I I agree. I when when we played the clip, the clip that we played at the beginning, where he was mimicking, you know, doing it, um, what the audience sounded like to yeah. him. I felt that same sense of relief. I was like, great, he's going to talk about this. He's going to talk about the ways conversation is restricted about how we can't say anything anymore. I was excited. I think where he lost me was his examples. You know, I 
I do think we need to talk about Me Too and sexuals. I think we need to talk about things with nuance. I think there is a difference between Harvey Weinstein and Al Franken and Louis C.K. I think there are differences. I think when he chose Michael Jackson, he lost me. And that, I think, is personal. I watched the documentary, too. I was really shook by it. I have not listened to Michael Jackson. I really, you know, I, so to me, that wasn't personally funny. I do think it's such a personal experience comedy. Um, I guess it was where he took us, where he lost mm-hmm. me. I, I, I did want him to approach that. And I really liked the way he did it in the second yeah. half. And he lost me actually as soon as he was, uh, explained who he was doing an impression of because I had been in an audience that he had been treating contemptuously <laughs> in Hartford. And I'm like, this guy is such a jerk. And so, you know, I mean, the thing is I could still appreciate the complexity of his act and the humor and the high wire act that he was pulling. But I had been in an audience that he had abused before. And so him coming out and basically, you know, being like, Durr, you know, uh, you know, uh, is – I mean, you could say it's really daring and whatnot, but these are people who paid to be there for you. So anyway, that's me personalizing it again, Colin. Well, which is <laughs> which I think people do. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not suggesting that's illegitimate. Um, uh, I just uh, I have this kind of policy of the the most offended person. There's always the most yeah. offended person. I always give the example of the, somebody who wanted me to publicly apologize for making a joke about shellfish allergies. And, and she was demanding that I apologize to the entire allergy community publicly. And I didn't even realize there was an allergy community. And I, I just said, you're the most offended person by this. But there's always, but he's obviously venturing into much more dangerous yeah, terrain yeah. He than sure the is. allergy community, um, community. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, in terms of, of his, uh, his protectiveness of celebrities, right? Um, his whole point about Kevin Hart uh, my takeaway from it, which I which I think might be an unintended uh, consequence of how he framed it, was that um, you know Kevin Hart, unlike most other people, was given the opportunity to make a simple friggin' statement <laughs> and not lose the Oscars, which is the thing that he dreamt of being since he was a little kid, right? Right. You know, all he had to say is like, "Hey, everybody, that was actually a joke." I don't mean these things. I would not hurt a child. I would not hurt a gay child, you know? And and that's a simple thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's a simple concession for folks who were really deeply concerned, uh, you know, that he meant it. Um, and he was willing to, in, you know, in that Nike way, uh, risk everything uh, to hold on to his principles on that. And I, therefore, do not feel sorry for Kevin Hart. That is a choice that he made. And good for him for making it, but we don't need like you know, we don't need a pity session for him at that point. I, I was I was wondering if anybody had sort of a, any artistic reactions to this too. And in spe- specifically, this begins in such an odd way, you know. As mm-hmm. I said, there. Well, first of all, it begins with this kind of New Yorker style font, uh, the and then a, a printed quote from Kendrick Lamar, and this kind of graphic of sticks and stones, kind of floating in space. Rich could describe this graphic a lot better than than I can. And then it begins with him in, in this dirge-like way mm-hmm. singing Prince's uh, 1999. Uh, and, and I just thought, well, yeah, you, you react to that. So that to me was, was, was the setup for this whole thing, right? He's taking a look at, you know, at, at print, the, highlighting a piece of Prince's lyrics in there, right, that was about, you know, that – this there's a course for essentially there's a course of self destruction and oh well whatever 
Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I think that that is that that seems like uh, the edge that he's flirting with. Mm-hmm. And he made everybody aware of it, you know, that uh, that we may as well have the eulogy while we're doing the party because this is where this is going. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of applaud that. I don't think that he delivered on it. Right. That there's a that there's a kind of acknowledgement of self-destruction uh, that was in this party song uh, that um, that Chappelle wasn't doing. You know, he was sort of he was really always clear with his audience where he was and where and on what side of the line he was falling. He was I could feel him taking the temperature constantly or, you know, or coaxing them to give him the response that he needed, you know, for both the soundtrack and for their own experience. You know, so so there's a piece of it that was craftsmanlike. And uh, and also a piece that was manipulative and inauthentic to me. Yeah, I I, I don't know. Anybody else want to react to that? I didn't think of it as I, I wouldn't say I thought of it as being inauthentic, but I did think it of being very deliberate. And and maybe the word manipulative came to mind. I, I didn't think he was um, he wasn't open. This wasn't this wasn't him mm. exuding empathy. This was him making really strong points and really strong choices from that from that beginning. Um, he goes from that into an Anthony Bourdain joke. His opening material oh, right. is an Anthony yeah. Bourdain suicide joke. Um, yeah, what you, go I, ahead. Well, I actually think the more fascinating thing is the ending, the coda that's not – you have to continue watching after you think it's over mm-hmm. um, to get to this whole thing about his Broadway run and uh, Q&A that shows a completely different, warmer side to him uh, that – that would have been nice to see in the special. Yeah. Although I think he I think he doesn't want to do that in the special though, you know? No. He doesn't want to be nice Uncle Dave. <laughs> he no, wants but, to be horrible Uncle Dave. Yeah. He's protecting himself. But I mean the thing is I would rather spend an evening with nice Uncle Dave. I mean, I don't ever expect Dave Chappelle to truck in Bill Cosby comedy. I also at the same time don't want to sit down and listen to someone make fun of Bill Cosby's victims. Mm-hmm. Right. And I got to tell you, if you're if you want to be if you don't want to be good Uncle Dave, you know, then uh, then don't give yourself an out at the end of the special by putting. Oh, by the way, I'm good Uncle Dave. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, like I, cut I, I that wonder, out. And I just wonder leave about it hard. that, too. Yeah. yeah it's kind of like he's trying to have it both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's sort of interesting. I, I don't know what this has to do with the conversation we're having right now, except that the name just came up. So I happen to be watching some of Jerry Seinfeld's uh, comedians and cars uh, things this week. And I'm going to mention one of them in the endorsements. But at one point, he just off uh, kind of as an aside mentions his comedy Mount Rushmore. And it's um, it's George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Don Rickles, and Bill Cosby. And this was said, you know, within the last two three years. You know, it's sort of interesting that the way that comedians think about stuff like this. Mm-hmm. You know, that that Seinfeld, who's you know ultimately a, a very mainstream guy and is playing has played to a very mainstream audience his entire life, would put Bill Cosby on his sure. Mount Rushmore. But we- we get to that so much on on a number of occasions on this show, Colin, this mm-hmm. idea of, you know, uh, do you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, out in the out in the real world, outside of radio, I keep having this conversation. I'm like, I don't know, maybe one day we'll be on the nose and we're going to finally resolve this thing. Mm-hmm. But we just can't quite get to 
you know, where that line really is. I have not stopped listening to Michael Jackson. I will confess that. Uh, all right. So we need to, uh, speaking of music, uh, make a quick throw now uh, to Woodstock, Connecticut, where Governor Ned Lamont has convened some musicians to recreate the incredible excitement of Woodstock. He's arranged for it to rain incessantly out there today. Uh, and right now we're going to go to Frankie Graziano with a special feature we call... Ask you, Frankie. What do we call it? Accu Frankie. Thank you. <laughs> so, Accu Frankie, we're going to Frankie Graziano out in Woodstock, Connecticut. Uh, Frankie, are you there? I am live from Woodstock, Connecticut, where the Balkan brothers are the first plan to play. So, we got some music in the background. All right. Uh, one of those Balkans used to be my chiropractor, but um, that's actually true. Uh, or maybe it's his son's. So, so, just paint a picture for us, Frankie. Describe the scene as you see it now. The Woodstock cosplay is in full effect. I see a ton of ponchos with fringe. I see tie-dye. It certainly looks like, I guess, what it would have looked like 50 years ago, right, at Woodstock. But, no, I mean, there are some young people here like the the governor wanted, uh, but mostly it seems like it's a lot of people that want to relive some of the music of old. And um, it's good to see, I guess, that we've got our first band here going underway. About 20 minutes it took here to get a sound check, but now it looks like we finally have some music. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, when I got up this morning, I didn't think that the phrase Woodstock cosplay would be on my, my show today. Um, how, many people, <laughs> how many people would you say right now, if you had to guess, percentage of the audience that's on LSD right now, if, if you just, just throw out a number for me? Percentage of, of audience that's what? I'm sorry. That's, that's using that. LSD right now. How many people are tripping on acid? I would say I got a ballpark in the 57% range. It generally looks like people are having a good time, right. so they'd have to be, right? Um, especially if they're imagining rain like it did back <laughs> at Woodstock. But we already had a, a protest here. Somebody was talking about a group talking about fossil fuels. So maybe, uh, maybe if there's some more psychedelics, there'll be some more protests, more, right. uh, more thoughts of the days of yore. Did you, first of all, is, is Governor Ned Lamont in evidence? Is he sort of the Don Kirshner of this event? Okay, so first of all, Governor Lamont uh, funded much of this event, and so he's, he's super into it. But he's even, he's walked around here, he, he had his governor regalia on, I guess. He had his casual Friday slacks on. But then all of a sudden, he threw the Woodstock tie-dye shirt on over him, so he looks like pretty much everybody else. Looks like he's having maybe too good of a time. But uh, this is Netstock. You coined that phrase first. I think it was like two months ago, but... He's in his glory. This might be uh, his happiest day that he's had here since uh, he became governor. <laughs> by the way, I'm being told by the organizers the 50% number, the 50% uh, 57% number is actually antacids. Uh, it's only about three percent of the people are on acid. Uh, hey, Frank, you should quickly mention the bumper sticker on the car uh, that you were driving behind on your way out to Woodstock today. Even on Ned Lamont's happiest days, there's going to be detractors. And, of course, there are some no-toll CT people here. And I saw that I haven't been able to talk to any of them, but they're at the event. And when I was coming into the event, sort of ironic that one of the bumper stickers said uh, on a car that was in front of me said, don't blame me, I voted for Bob. Oh, no, no. That just is so not right in this time of peace and love. All right. Well, Frankie Graziano, thank you so much for joining us now uh, on a feature we call Accu Frankie. All right. We'll have to take a break from Accu Frankie and Ned Stock, uh, and we will uh, be back after the proverbial this.
We are back. Uh, welcome back to the news with Rich Holland, uh, Jacques Lamar, uh, Cara McDonough. And uh, Rich is already tuning up. He's got excited listening to all that Nedstock stuff. He's going to be performing mm-hmm. at the similar to Woodstock under the influence uh, uh, concert tonight uh, at the UCC Church on Flag Road uh, and as part of a lineup of uh, performers. So we also saw and has sort of been released uh, to uh, iTunes, Amazon, DVD, Blu-ray, all that kind of stuff, a movie called The Last Black Man in America. A lot of critics have put it on their list of the best movies so far in 2019. Small uh, independent film, uh, very much the story uh, of a usurped throne and a prince trying to reclaim it. But the throne's a Victorian house uh, at the corner of Golden Gate and Fillmore in San Francisco. Uh, The prince is a young man who has experienced homelessness but who used to live there. Um, So um, without further ado, we'll uh, hear a little clip from the movie. Uh, You're going to hear the star of the movie. Jimmy Fails, uh, who actually plays a character named Jimmy Fails. Uh, he's going to be leaning out the window of this house. Uh, there's a Segway tour, which is a real thing that happens a lot in San Francisco. A Segway tour is going by. The tour guide, interestingly, is actually played by Jello Biafra, who was in the Dead Milkman. Was he in the Dead Milkman? What was Jello Biafra? Which band was he? he? Oh. I don't, I don't know. I think it was a dead milkman. Somebody, our crack research department will find that out too. Uh, so here's a, a little clip of the tour guide and Jimmy talking about the house. This house was built in the 1940s. <laughs> Say hi to our neighbor here, everybody. That would actually be about 100 years late for this style. We can see from his gingerbread trim, this was built sometime in the 1850s. Uh, 1946. I'm gonna have to disagree with you there, dude, man. No architect in the 1940s was building in this style. That's probably true, but this wasn't built by an architect. My grandfather built this. He came here in World War II. He bought this lot and he built this house. The stairs, these windows, the columns, the archways, the witch hat, the balustrades, the fish scales, this balcony, that wall to keep you all the f- out, all of it by Jimmy Fells the first with his own two hands in 1946. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Well, let's move on to our next stop. All right. Uh, so I'm being informed uh, Jello Biafra was actually with the Dead Kennedys talking about a uh, bad transgressive taste. Uh, but anyway, that's the band that he was in. So, um, Kara, I think one of the points that you made as we were emailing around about this uh, was, uh, I think, a, a really fascinating one, that there's a, 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 there's a structure to this movie um, that is – theatrical and dramatic in in nature. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Right. I thought it was, I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was a very play theater-like production. I thought that the um, the dialogue, the scenes, um, some of the shots where there's skateboarding, the shots of the city were just incredibly um, beautiful, for lack of a better word. Um, I thought that the you know the, op- they, the movie opens with um, sort of a man on the street preaching mm-hmm. to people, 
um, which I thought was uh, very, very theatrical also. I thought that there were these characters who weren't really clearly defined almost in Shakespearean terms. You know, there's this gang on the street that sort of reminded me of one of the choruses in Shakespeare, all those characters who are sort of telling it like it is to the to the audience. Um, the, the preacher, again, he was kind of a, you know, almost like a, there, there's like these puck-like characters. Um, and I love that about this movie. I felt like, I felt like it was, extremely artistic the music was extremely artistic it was very deliberate dialogue and uh, I really enjoyed that about it just watching it without dialogue I would have enjoyed it too visually yeah I want to circle back to the music because that really had a big impact on me Jacques how did this work for you Uh, you know as I was watching it um, I was really struck by the the theatricality of it and um, uh, I it felt like an August Wilson uh uh, play to me in a in a lot of ways, um, <clears throat> and uh, especially when, when you think about like his last play, Radio Golf, was really about gentrification and taking over neighborhoods and what have you, and uh, and also there were there were elements uh, to it that felt very um, Spike Lee to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that they were kind of standing on the shoulders of of giants with this this project. It's um, I don't think it entirely achieves its ambitions, uh, but I think that that it's an amazing artistic statement. And I thought it, there was so much about it that was very beautiful. I think you and I had a similar problem. I really like this movie too, but there's a little bit of a mumbling I- issue with some of the actors. And then I think the actual miking of this, 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 this is kind of a first time film for most of the people working on it. It is, it created a big stir, stir at Sundance. It's gotten, it got some incredible reviews, Manola Dargis in particular, uh, who I think has an eye for finding this kind of movie, really gave it a booming review. But there's ways in which you can see that these people they haven't made a lot of movies so far. And I actually thought there were actual, you know, audio miking issues here that sometimes made the dialogue hard to pick up. Yeah, especially because the, the the score and the, the songs are pitched so loud. At uh, times, yeah. 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 At times there's dead silence. A lot of dead silence in this yeah. movie too. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Rich. I was writing the, the volume control the entire movie and getting scolded for that. <laughs> and um, – <laughs> Uh, so I'm right there with you that it had a, a kind of spikely quality to it, but it resolved a spikely problem for me, right? In that uh, some of these uh, visual devices that Lee throws in are sort of they disrupt the the uh, you know they break that 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 wall down, right? And you know and interfere with the story intentionally, but it's still a, a you know you're so aware of the of the director's hand there mm-hmm. this happened so abundantly um i mean the entire film was these sort of spikely moments or you know similar moments that it stopped mattering after a while you know that it became a you know a new language and a familiar language that was handled consistently through through the piece so it was gorgeous mm-hmm. i mean just from a purely photographic standpoint it was beautiful um, from some of the sort of what felt almost like improvisational characters thrown in the middle of this that were also tightly scripted. It was lovely. Um, I was absolutely watching Shakespeare and I was watching uh, derivatives of Shakespeare. I was uh, I was mentioning earlier that um, this does the sort of um, the, the faded uh, buddy movie. Uh, much mm-hmm. like uh, um, Gilden, uh, Rosencrantz and Gildenstern are dead, um, that you know exactly where these these characters are going to to end up. You know that, however hopeful they may be in their endeavors, 
in the endeavor of reclaiming this house and preventing gentrification, you know that it's going to end with exactly that you know, last of the Mohicans shot at the end of this mo- at the end of this movie, uh, and you know, and and to their credit, they honored that. You know, they didn't put you know that half spin. You know, they didn't have Chappelle coming in at the end and respinning <laughs> what happened before. Mm-hmm. You know, they honored the setup, and uh, so it was interesting to watch a movie where you know the the plot theme was predictable mm-hmm. and yet the character and because there was no energy spent on that that mm. the character development was so rich and so beautiful and um and so evocative although it's interesting to me i felt um that uh his his best friend uh that character felt a little bit like underdeveloped or a bit of a device to me compared to how well and shaded Jimmy's character was. Maybe that's easier because Jimmy was essentially playing himself. Mm. Um, but I don't know if people feel differently about that. But I, I was struggling for a long time with what is the relationship between these two guys. Uh, and then I just sort of felt like he was kind of along for the ride and, and plays a very important part in the third act. Yeah, I felt like actually the the best friend who I felt just was so intriguing. I agree. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite know what the deal was. I didn't know what the deal was a lot of time in this movie, to be <laughs> honest with you. But I didn't care because I liked the characters so much. I found them so endearing. Some of the, the scenes were so uh, just lovely that I didn't really care mm-hmm. that I wasn't quite sure what relationships were. And at the end of this movie, the best friend character, who I think his name is Montgomery, yes. right? I felt like there could have just rolled into a whole other movie about him. And I, I might have liked to know that story. Um, but but yeah, I found the relationship between, um, I guess, was that supposed to be his grandfather? Uh, so, yeah, they're they're living uh, they're living. The two best friends here, uh, Jimmy and Mont, as he's called through through most of the movies, are, are living in a house presided over by Danny Glover, who I think right. might be. Just judging from the age, it seems like it might be the grandfather mm-hmm. rather than the father. Uh, Danny Glover, probably the only name actor, unless Jello Biafra really works for you, um, <laughs> the only real name actor that appears in, in this movie. Um, just to sort of set it up a little bit more. So it is about uh, the loss of a house. It's based on Jimmy Fails' real life. Uh, his uh, grandfather owned uh, a house in what is known as the Fillmore District in San Francisco. Uh, the Fillmore District, just a little quick San Francisco history. First of all, San Francisco, uh, the black population of San Francisco, Francisco grew tremendously during and mostly immediately after World War II. It went from about 4,000 to 40,000. A lot of it was centered around this area called the Fillmore District, which turned into, they call it in the movie, sort of a Harlem on the West Coast. Uh, It was a place where uh, there was a really famous jazz scene, really interesting clubs. And similar to Hartford, it was kind of wrecked by 1970s redevelopment. Uh, So this is, but it's all about this young man who has nothing, really. He's been uh, part of his life. He's been raised in group homes. Uh, His Father, it appears that at some point had a, a crack problem based on a couple of little comments that are dropped. Uh, he's got nothing. Uh, the one thing he has is a claim, you know, it really is a very Shakespearean feeling claim to this this house, uh, which is actually owned by other people. Um, so he's he's exploring and trying to figure out what that claim means and what he can do with it. I think that's very much the movie. And you know, I just I I said I think in the emails to me the movie had a very dreamlike quality where. You know, to your point, Jacques, you could put multiple interpretations on what you're seeing. A lot of it depends on the person watching, maybe, as is the case with a dream. Yeah, and I, I was talking to my husband during the film, like, how would I qualify this? It's not magical realism. It's not 
so abstract that I would call it abstract. And so dreamlike is really um, uh, a great term, but it's also very much grounded in uh, reality, particularly in terms of how uh, African Americans have been treated in this country, um, where they live now versus the places that they called home, uh, uh, you know, a generation or two generations ahead, um, you know, and I think that it makes very powerful, powerful statements about race without yelling at you about it at the same time, uh, even though the street preacher is yelling at you at the beginning of the of the film when you realize the toxicity of where uh, the community has to live uh, as they've been pushed to the margins um, was was really beautifully um, and powerfully stated without, again, screaming at you about it. Yeah. It, it, yeah, I did feel like we're seeing in San Francisco that the tourists don't see and that a lot of San Franciscans probably don't see too. Yeah, and we are, we're also seeing uh, a very, very, very black movie um, in that, uh, that the role of, of you know, folks who weren't black uh, were very, very small. They were, you know, they, there were a couple of predictable spots, but they had no real sort of, um, you know, they stood for uh, an idea more so than a character. And um, and you know there was something kind of lovely about that in San Francisco because I mean I'm I've been in San Francisco a fair amount of uh, myself and that's not <laughs> my experience of San Francisco at all right. um, and uh, particularly with this tech boom that's going on and you know and the challenges that they're having uh, with any form of diversity in in that space um, so this is a, a different San Francisco and a really unfamiliar San Francisco to me and it, it was a, a welcome one to to witness. Um, there, uh, there is a, an issue with – it's not an issue. It's a thing that I kind of love and speak in keeping mm-hmm. with what we're talking about. Is it dreamy or what have you? It's, it felt like it's a series of poems. And some of the best poetry books that I've been reading are like this. They're about a place and they're individual poems that just hold their own for, you know, for a couple of stanzas. But as you go through them, there are these through lines that just hold the whole thing together and you end up with a picture of a place. And this movie feels like it moves like those books. You know, Kara, you talked about the music. Uh, there are several remarkable little sort of kind of found singing moments. Um, no, actually, Wolfie, let's, let's play that clip right now. This is one of the ones that, that you noticed. This is kind of a guy on the street singing. Take it down. Take it down. No more. No, we're going to go out with that. Never mind. So, I mean, the the way music is used in this uh, film uh, is um, oh, that's right. We're going to go out with the the if you're going to San Francisco uh, song that was actually from the score. So, actually, yeah, you can bring it back up. I'm sorry, <laughs> bring it back up, Wolfie. That's the score. The score is by a guy named uh, um, Emile Moreri. He hasn't written for movies before. He's written this very dreamy score that sounds very much like Satie or Ravel. Um, and um, Kara, all the way through, but other kinds of music are used. We see a homeless man who sings uh, O Mio Babino Caro, the Puccini uh, aria. We see uh, Jimmy skateboarding and Grace Slicka singing behind him. Right, right. I, lo- I loved that part. I loved all the music. I loved how the beginning was very, it sounded very classical, classical heavy. Mm, yeah. Um, sort of this beautiful score set to, you know, introducing the characters. Um, the part that I had mentioned when we spoke earlier was when there's a street singer singing a version of If You're Going to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. 
um, which definitely made me feel a little weepy. It's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful version. Beautiful. And the way that they set it to the scenery, I mean, I would recommend watching this movie, but even just for that scene, it's mm. it's really powerful. Um, and 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 it kind of what what we've all been saying this dreamlike quality. I think the music added to that mm. dreamlike poetic quality about this movie that is about a lot of things, but at a base level is about gentrification. So it's this mm. very basic idea that's set to light in very poetic, musical, artistic terms. I'm getting the wrap-up uh, cue. Uh, in fact, I got it a few minutes ago, so we have to stop. It's too bad because I have a lot more I'd like to say, and I think you guys do too. But we'll take a break. Oh, we'll come back. If you're going to San Francisco All right, thanks so much. Uh, the producer of today's show uh, is uh, Jonathan McPants. Uh, done his usual great job of pulling all this together. Wolfie's on the board, uh, who and I am managing to introduce as much confusion as possible by telling her to do the exact opposite of what I told her to do <laughs> before we went on the air. I apologize for that. Uh, all right, so our, we've got a great panel here. They're going to make some recommendations uh, to you. Jacques, would you like to go first? Uh, well, of course I want to because I was concerned there might not be a mention of Taylor Swift on this episode. Uh, endorse her new album. Album. It's really good. It's really good. Love her. I'm sure you've heard maybe a thing or two about it. Uh, and then also the movie Fair- The Farewell, uh, which I know is kind of only in a few scant theaters, but it is so worth um, checking out. It's about Aquafina um, going to uh, to China to see her her grandmother who is um, ailing, and uh, and it's very very emotional. But it's also uh, an incredible sort of look at Chinese culture versus uh, American culture versus Chinese American culture. All right, so it's the bow tie in New Haven. I think it's also playing at the m- huge multiplex in Plainville where basically every movie ever made is currently playing uh, because they have so many screens. So, so it's The Farewell. Uh, Cara, would you like to take us take it next? Sure. So I'm going to second the Taylor Swift, and then I'm going to bring it down a notch to a much more depressing topic, which is a book I just finished called Losing Earth by Nathaniel Rich. I don't know if anyone's mm-hmm. read it, but it's about climate change. But what it is about is the history of climate change and sort of how we got it all wrong in the 1970s and 80s. And it's fascinating um, because I wanted to read a book about climate change, and I literally could not force myself to pick up one of the books that's about what will happen because I'm a wimp. So I chose this one, which is about the history. Um, and it's it's neat because I remember when I was young, climate change, the greenhouse effect, all that stuff was in the news and uh, you know talked about as fact. And this is the story of what – what happened with that in politics, why people stopped moving towards change and um, and then, you know, up to the up to the current current times. So it's a great book. It's a really good read and sort of reinforces the fact that just learning about something is something you can do. About. The, the book is by Nathaniel Rich and it's called Losing Earth. Losing Earth. All right. Rich Holland. Okay, to make it really quick, one one thing, one thing only, L- go to Spotify or any of your other streaming places and find the music of Ed's Redeeming Qualities. I will huh. repeat that, Ed's Redeeming Qualities. Um, they are this, uh, this Boston-based uh, 
independent band that broke up a while ago, a club band, and they write amazing music like about uh, Nemo's barbecue chicken, about Pilgrim wallpaper, about why lawn darts are no longer for sale at Walmart, and uh, you know, and about guys who sell al- who feed Alka Seltzer to pink to pigeons, and therefore their girlfriends don't sleep well at night. Um, it's phenomenal music. It's naive, innocent ridiculous and uh, it'll make you weep. Actually, one reason I knew I wasn't popular in the neighborhood growing up is whenever uh, we would uh, play lawn darts, the other kids would make me play defense. <laughs> um, so um, Ed's re- – I am going to do that. I oh, am, you, you have, you've sold that idea to me anyway. All right. So I want to recommend uh, the third season of Glow. Uh, it's the most recent one. Glow is uh, the Glamorous Ladies of Wrestling. Uh, has an amazing cast uh, anchored by uh, Allison Brie and Betty Gilpin and Mark Marin. Um, the series has been great. This – Third series in terms of what uh, what Dave Chappelle calls the alphabet people, LGBT uh, uh, issues. It really is a very, very interesting treatment of it. They've gone in an entirely different direction with this series. It's set in Las Vegas this time. Gina Davis is introduced as a character in a maybe not looking like the Gina Davis exactly that we remember, but she's very, very cool and very interesting in this. And I just I find myself just weeping numerous times uh, during this third series season because of the way that they they deal with so it's set I think kind of in the mid to late 80s uh, so there's a, a lot on the table really in terms of LGBT issues uh, so third season of glow really amazing and then uh, Jerry Seinfeld's uh, I mentioned it before his series comedians getting coffee now, even if you don't watch the rest of the series watch the um, episode featuring Jerry Seinfeld and Gary Shandling they were much closer friends than I had realized uh, of course Gary Shandling has since left us which makes the conversation they're having just even more poignant. At one point, Shanling talks about talking to some guy who, uh, some crew member who was excited to see that he hadn't died and said, I'd probably see it on television. Gary Shanley goes, well, I don't know if they'd break in. Um, <laughs> so anyway, it's really worth watching. Anyway, thanks very much to Rich Holland, Jacques Lamar, and Cara McDonough, a great nose panel. We'll see you live on Tuesday. <laughs>